We never want to just study the Bible. We want to read to get familiar. We want to study to go deeper. But ultimately, we need to contemplate it so we can see the face of Christ and fall in love more. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Bulletin, the parish podcast of St. Anthony of Padua. My name is Nate Hoffman. I am the communications and development coordinator at St. Anthony of Padua. And today I am joined by a fellow married man, <laughs> Michael That's right. Gormley. That's right. It is good to be here. Yes, I am a fellow married man now that you've been married for two weeks. I am 10 days in. 10 and days in. Yeah. I and told, already regret it. Yeah, I, I told Father Jesse today, <laughs> that's the mark. You have to get through the first 10 days, and then it's all sunshine and daisies after that. It's been so difficult, you know? Oh, I'm sure. It must have been a burden there in uh, old Costa burden. Rica. Costa Rica, the, the, the honeymoon, been back for like four days. Golly, marriage is good. Yeah. Hey, uh, ask me what I did on my honeymoon. What did you do on your honeymoon? Nothing. Yeah. We didn't have a honeymoon. Oh, no way. Nope. We, we, we were at Shannon's parents in St. Louis for two extra days after the wedding, uh, getting our stuff ready, and we drove straight to my new job in Austin, Texas. We had I used my father-in-law flew out a month before the wedding and snuck $150 into my cup holder after I drove him to the airport. And uh, I used that every penny of that $150 for the, the, the rest of that month for school. And then I drove, I took my finals and drove a week before my wedding to St. Louis and I used my last penny to get there. It was nuts. You literally were out of money besides that. Uh, well, so I had given talks and this guy would pay me in Sheets gas cards. You ever heard of Sheets gas stations? You ever heard of that? No. I okay, not. you know why? Because it's only a Northeastern thing. And once I left Pennsylvania, there are no sheets. So I'm like, how am I supposed <laughs> to pay for my gas? Sell them at a discount. Yeah, so, yeah. It was well, funny. you know, that sounds funny. comparable to what I did, which is jet ski on the ocean, uh, which is pretty good. Which is pretty good. If I you hate ever you get so much. Chance. Yeah, um, never, had a, never had a honeymoon. I think <sighs> the coolest thing that we did, though, uh, we we met another couple who was also on their honeymoon, nice. and they and we hung out with them all week. They were such a blessing to us, and they spoke Spanish fluently. And they met a, a a man on the beach who offered to take us to his hometown for mass on Saturday night. And so we got into this guy's car and drove twenty five minutes into Costa Rica and went to mass with this guy at his parish. <laughs> we met his brother. And they took us to their favorite restaurant, and <laughs> we had seafood and chatted all night. It was it was amazing experience. That like, is like, incredible. Yeah. See, that's the type of stuff that I would live for. Like that is what. Like when I went to Milan for uh, I was doing a semester abroad, um, we were stuck on this train because we thought we were going to be smart college students, and instead of paying for hotels like a chump, we just sleep on the train. Turns out they oversell all of the trains, and I was in a jump seat in the hallway. The whole ride down. So we get out, and this wonderful woman, an American woman that we met who was studying art in Milan, takes us on this walking tour, takes us all over Milan, takes us to this beautiful Franciscan monastery on a mountain that overlooks the city, and then that's where we ended up lodging for free for, for two nights 
in Milan in a Franciscan wow. monastery. So it's stuff like that that you're just like, I'm going to see a side of this city that no one else is going to see. Yeah, it's, awesome. it's hard to do. It's 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 a little scary to do that to go off the reservation um, a little bit, but yeah. it is uh, it was worth it. And um, yeah, loved the honeymoon. I, I've been making it a practice on this podcast to to talk about how I'm an engaged man. And yeah, I'll have to. Yeah, it's a healthy that. practice. I'll have to stop that going forward. Yeah, I am a little upset that your story didn't end with you still being kidnapped and held for ransom. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. But yep. I guess having you here with me. It was is fun a... that that was on the table. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Come, come to my town. It's, it's 45 minutes I've to six hours away. Who knows how far away? Uh, <laughs> you guys can't understand a word I'm saying, and that's fine. Um, actually, yeah, Emily does understand Spanish, and I was the only one in the car. Who was he was just, just, you. just bouncing around, just like, oh, yeah, this sounds all good. So this is what pure hope looks like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, Mike, we got a topic. We, we got, got a topic. topic today. We do have a topic. We want to um, go into like the whole pa- whole podcast is is all about what's going on at St. Anthony of Padua, and there's there's so much going on right now. We have the Thanksgiving project. We're prepping up for for Advent. We um, we got a fellowship Sunday coming up uh, in, in a couple of weeks, so we're very excited about that. But the classes um, that we have here yeah. um, at St. Anthony are are in full gear. Yeah. Um, after after the break of COVID and whatnot, they're they're back, and, and there's a huge variety of classes, and, and many of them are focused on scripture. Yeah, as they should be. As they should be. Every Roman Catholic ought to know and be familiar with sacred scripture. Absolutely. We um, have so many different Bible studies here, and we have. One, we have tons of just studying scripture, but we also have different prayer groups and all these things that utilize scripture. It's kind of a beautiful cornucopia of biblical offerings that we have. Yeah, it's it's a um, really it's a myth about Catholics that we don't dive into the Bible because at any vibrant and alive parish, that's what that's what the Catholics are, are diving into. And you see it here. Um, just to go over a few, we have a, a cornerstone study going on right now that's that's going off the way through Genesis. We have a Wednesday morning reflection group that is a, uh, it's a lectionary-based study. What's what's a lectionary-based study? So that follows the um, readings used within the liturgy, and then they turn it into a Bible study. I believe they use the word among us. I might be wrong, but I think that's what they use as their you know kind of guiding text. So they, they follow the um, follow the church and what the church decides they should be reading that yeah. day. So yeah. it's a very cool thing. Following the liturgical year, it's very mm-hmm. important. Yeah. Then we also have the Great Adventure Scripture Study Series, which is uh, invented by Jeff Cavins working out at uh, uh, Ascension Press. And what they do is they have a whole approach to studying scripture in a more in-depth way. It's more academic than devotional. So for those who want to study and wrestle with the scriptures, um, it tends to focus on kind of like getting to the heart of this. But, of course, it's Jeff Cavins. He can take the most academic thing and apply it to your soul in a way that makes you holier. Yeah. So Then we have things like Walking with Purpose, St. Monica's, and, and a yeah. whole host of other studies that are either going into the Scripture or they're going into books that are going into the Scripture. Yeah, the cool thing about things like Walking with Purpose and our um, Women Throughout the Bible series is they attack thematically Scripture um, through you know understanding different aspects so whether you're talking about the different women in the bible and their roles uh, and and drawing life lessons from them or walking with purpose you're drawing these great themes and under self-understanding and you know who you are in your relationship with god the father Uh, it's it's a thematic approach to the bible so you have your book studies your lectionary studies and your theme studies and all of them open up the bible in different ways that are uniquely impactful in a catholic's life 
So that's um, that's basically what we have going on at St. Anthony's. It's a blanket recommendation from both of us to to get involved yeah. in one of those things. I mean, if it's whether it's that man is you, which gets up early and they that's it's it's a, it's a men's group, or or whether it's one of our afternoon uh, or evening groups, there is a different flavor of group uh, getting into something here at St. Anthony's that uh, that will work for you. So, and if and if it's not that, uh, Mike, it's it's getting involved in the scripture on your own in your yeah. own life personally with your spouse. I have a spouse, Mike. You have a know. spouse. Mm-hmm. That's right. Or or getting involved in a group of your own. You know, starting your own uh, yeah. couples group or, or a singles group or whatever it is. Uh, there's nothing more important than diving into scripture as a Christian and as a Catholic. And we want to dive into you know, why is that? Yeah. I, I might play a little bit of a devil's advocate here, Mike. Mm. Starting with, isn't C.S. Lewis a better author? <laughs> it, it, isn't uh, Scott Hahn a little more interesting? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. Frederick Nietzsche, the famous atheist existentialist philosopher, said something along the lines, if it's a shame that when God decided to speak, he spoke Greek and not too well. Uh, and <laughs> mocking. That's a burn. I know, that's a sick burn, mocking the New Testament. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, a lot of people in the early church, the, a lot of church fathers who converted from paganism, that was their big struggle. They're like, really, this is the word of God? Uh, clearly, the Iliad and the Odyssey and, and the plays, the dramas of Sophocles—they're—they're um, they're much better than the prose of Matthew and Luke and, and all this stuff. It was very difficult for a lot of them. Saint Augustine talks a lot about that of converting because they felt like it was like, yeah, but come on, this isn't really polished compared to the great oratories of the uh, the Greek canon. And so, one of the things that we have to do when we realize that we're approaching Scripture. I think more than anything else is Pope Benedict said, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict, but when he was Pope, he said, the new springtime of the churches can only come about through the assiduous study of sacred scripture and through Letzio Divina, the praying of scripture. Mm. And I read that when I was, I think I was 23, I think is when he made that comment. And that was a game changer for me because I had studied under Dr. Scott Hahn. I had studied under these people. But the Bible for me, like when I would read Scott Hahn, I don't know if you ever do this, where like you're reading a book and then there's a scripture quote and you're like, yeah, I know that. And you kind of like skip, skip over. It. Yeah. It's like yeah. seeing a, a song in when you're reading Lord of the Rings. You're like, I don't need to read all of that. Oh, gosh, I'm the exact opposite with that. <laughs> but <laughs> I would do that all the time. And there was slowly this change within me that the more I studied scripture and the more I prayed scripture, the more I could stop at those moments when they quoted and actually repose, rest in these words more than I would in the words of Scott Hahn. Scott Hahn always reminds us that there's a lot of books that are written about God. The Bible is different because it's words about God in God's own words. And that's something that should give us pause. There's a lot of books that are written about God. The Bible is different because it's words about God in God's own words. The greatest talk I've ever given and the most, you know, incredible, you know, repentance, holiness, whatever I've ever inspired is nothing compared to the word of God because every word, even Leviticus, every word is anointed by divine inspiration, every word. And so you can read something, something that you think might be trivial, and it can have this effect of a life-changing thing, even something like Leviticus, right? But how do I go about doing that? Because uh, a lot of us have read Leviticus, and a lot of a lot of us have read even Luke or, or John. John is uh, a 
you know, a beautiful yeah. text. Yeah, it's you know? popping fresh. Yeah. yeah. So you're reading this and you're thinking, I, I maybe I'll just speak in the first person because I've I've read the Gospels and thought, why am I not getting a better uh, prayer out of this? Why mm-hmm. am I getting nothing out of this? I, I'm sometimes I'm more inspired listening to a talk by Mike Schmitz or Father yeah. Mike Schmitz or or um, reading something by Bishop Barron. So what do I need to do to be diving into the Scriptures uh, more deeply? Um, number one is to realize that the Bible is not just a book to be read, right? C.S. Lewis writes a book to be read. The Bible is a book to be contemplated repeatedly, right? So when we hear the Bible, the primary place, the primary zone of encountering scripture is within the liturgy, right? You can have books like the Psalms, which were literally written for the temple liturgy, or it was written for um, Israelites in pilgrimage going up to Jerusalem, or it was written for the liturgies of the coronation of the son of David as king over Jerusalem. Like, you have these things that the, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, right? But also, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by their distinctive communities to fulfill their liturgical needs. It was a proclamation, right? So, the first place that we encounter the Word of God is always sacramental and liturgical. And I think as Catholics, because we are in, you know, it feels like the buckle of the Bible belt here, because we're here and we're around people who take their Bibles to church and stuff, I, I would totally encourage that practice. But one of the things is to allow ourselves to have the Word of God spoken over us as like this act of our Father speaking His divine Word to us, right? Like when we walk into the church, we have to be ready to receive what God wants to give. And too often we just think of that in terms of communion. But when you begin to study scripture, you see how the liturgy from the collect prayers, the let us pray, okay, right? The collect prayers and all that stuff all weave the gospel throughout every single thing that we do. And so if you're not ready to be receptive to the word of God being prayed over us, then it's going to be harder to get into the mass because most of the mass and its prayers are composed based off of the gospel. So how do we get into the Bible? First and foremost, you have to realize you're not reading an Agatha Christie novel. You're not reading a C.S. Lewis amazing book, and I love C.S. Lewis. You're reading something that is God's word to you that carries with it a divine power, right? So it's not going to be read like other books, and you have to get that out of your mind. I'm not here to be entertained. I'm not here to be inspired. I am here to receive God's word for me. So once you have, it's that disposition to come into it, okay? Then the second thing I would say is once you've received it in the liturgy, the other thing is prayerful contemplation, right? How often do we carve out time to just be alone with the word of God, read it, and saturate in it? The rabbis and the early monks, especially in the Benedictine tradition, the word that they use was rumination, right? A ruminant is an animal that chews the cud and, you know, constantly is chewing and chewing and chewing. That's what they described how to read scripture is to constantly chew upon the word of God and the Bible. I mean, Lord knows you ever read the Bible and you're like, what is this even talking about? Uh, I, I really do believe those parts in the Bible that are difficult to understand or scary to understand the way that they're laid out um, or just weird or confusing are meant to say like, Hey, slow down. The book of Ruth is four chapters. That doesn't mean you just fly by, right? <laughs> like slow down. And so as a Catholic, then the next thing would be get a guide, get a guide. When I read um, the Iliad for the first time, uh, I I read it in a book that had a like 150 page introduction because I've never read the Iliad before. I wasn't in a class. I didn't take an ancient Greek literature class. And I knew this was a really important book, but I didn't know how to navigate it. 
So I got a navigator. I got a guide. Mm-hmm. That introduction helped me understand it. So, too, you and I, we should not just encounter the Bible on our own. I'm going to figure this all out. It's like, why? Because the Bible was a book that was given to the church. So let's receive it from the heart of the church, right? Imagine 2,000 years of people reading, meditating, reflecting, and living this sucker out. Let's do that. So there are specific Bibles that provide these uh, intros and, you can and do, commentaries? Yeah. I mean, the most famous one right now is the Scott Hahn and Curtis Mitch Study Bible, published by Ignatius Press. They a have black, con- black uh, book, right? Well, the, the New Testament's a big black one. Mm-hmm. They, the Old Testament's coming out here soon. Um, but the, I don't think they're ever going to combine it because that'd be so huge, huge, but I really wish they would. Um, they also sell them in individual books. So you can buy the whole Bible now into those individual books. But there's another wonderful one from uh, the Navarra Bible in Navarra University. I have that Bible, and I, I use it all the time. It's got uh, yeah. quotes from— uh, Mostly the Church Fathers. It, it's, it's Church Fathers and St. Jose yeah. Maria Escrivá. Yes, yes. And, and yes. it's, it's incredible. It's very spiritual, I would mm. say, more so than this, this Scott Hahn's Bible, which is— I more academic, more ap- yeah. academic. Yeah. yeah but both and, both good yeah and, and then so um like i don't know if you follow bishop Barron, but he participated in this um i think it was called the brazos bible um study series but what they did was instead of getting biblical scholars they got theologians to meditate on and provide commentary because there those are two different practices the, the biblical scholarship is very weird in that, you know, atheists are like the leading biblical scholars, mm-hmm. but leading in a weird way. <laughs> not not exactly in the right way, but there's a lot of science behind it, a lot of um, philology and archaeology and history and stuff that's incorporated into studying scripture. So it's always good to have recourse to the sciences and people who are full-time, and this is their, their term, exegetes, people who exegete scripture for a living. Having commentaries from them, very handy right? That's what the Scott Hahn stuff, it'll get you into that sort of approach. But you could buy, I mean, I've, I've had biblical commentaries on the gospel of John, for instance, that are books long, not, you know, I mean, we're talking thousands of pages. So. Right. So you just said a word there, exegetes, yeah. and exegesis yeah. is, the, is, the, is another word, so E-X-E-G, I'm not going to spell it. Yeah, that. so it means, <laughs> so there's exegesis and eisegesis, and eisegesis means I read into the text, exegesis, exit, to go out of. What are I we supposed to do as Catholics just reading the Bible? Are we supposed to get do exegesis on the Bible and, and get meaning out of it ourselves? Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, exegesis as a scholarly work, you're not going to do. Like, I remember it, as an undergrad, we had to write in, uh, every biblical studies class you had, you're supposed to write a five-page exegesis on a passage. But then the professors are like, you don't really know the biblical languages. You don't really know any of the content. You haven't been reading for 20 years. You're not really doing an exegesis. You're writing an essay drawing from these commentaries in order to understand. This is the thing that I think a lot of times we lose sight of. So many people want to rush to interpret the Bible. And when, when we were taught to read scripture, it was read, observe, observe, interpret, right? Because everyone wants to read and interpret. Well, well, this means this and this means this. And one of the things you, you lose sight of is how the, the crafting of the story tells the story itself. So the way I describe it, uh, I, I fake woodwork. I don't know about you. Do, are you handy? You, I know we all. brought this no, up. Yeah, no. I'm, I'm not handy at all either, but I've spent thousands of dollars on woodworking tools. Thousands right. of dollars, and I'm terrible. I have yet to make a right angle, and I'm not joking at all. I wish I was. That's I'm, the hardest angle to make. Uh, well, I, I, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I've never made one. Uh, so one of the things that I've learned in studying is the work, uh, the Nick Offerman, who is Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, he has a, a woodworking shop in, um, in Hollywood, and I have his book, Good Clean Fun, and I was reading through it, 
And the, the precision that you need to make fine furniture is one sixty-fourth of an inch. You can't be off more than that. Or your furniture is going to be, it's not going to work. It's just, you know, you're going to be sloppy. And when you realize like that level of precision, when they talk about like the Amish building chairs without using a single screw and no glue, it's all joinery and stuff. It's so fascinating. That's, I think, one of the most perfect analogies for how the ancient writers wrote the Bible. Because when they wrote, they weren't writing just to slap together a narrative. First was this God called Yahweh encountered a people, Israel, in history. That changed their history, right, forever, right? They're the most unique people in human history because of the God that elected them. And then when you start to hear this story and you start to read, excuse me, when you start to read the story, you realize that this book is not a holy book like other holy books, right? This isn't a guy on a mountaintop collecting a bunch of visions, spilling it all out into a wisdom literature, and then here you go. There's wisdom literature in it, but again, even that wisdom literature is unlike any other ancient religion's wisdom literature. There's something of history that's of a historical encounter throughout the whole thing. But the other thing is, paper is expensive back then. People who could read and write were very, very few. So the people that wrote every word, one had to carry many meanings. We call it, we call it being polyvalent. They were the meaning upon meaning upon meaning, right? So it's heavily symbolic. But also, um, they didn't have a lot of words, a lot of space, a lot of time to write this stuff. So they crafted the very structure of the books and of the writings were done so as to convey meaning by its very structure, right? So when you look at an old piece of furniture, like they'll, they'll take a cross-section and be like, look at this joinery method and all this stuff. Like They didn't have to do it that way. They could have done a dovetail joint, slapped the things together. But the artistry tells you something more about the artist. It tells you more about what they're doing. For instance, there are. Have you ever heard of the alphabet psalms? You ever heard yes. Of that? Yeah. yeah. So there is, I think, eight or nine psalms that are. If you know Hebrew and you read it in Hebrew, it's A B C D right. E. Right. It just goes through the Hebrew alphabet for the first line. So it's an acrostic. Why would they do that? They do that because it's the artistry. It's beauty. Right. They want to. They want to saturate this thing with beauty. But then they do things like in the Hebrew language, they don't have comparatives and superlatives. So we would say if me and you were to race, a comparative is Nate is fast, but clearly Gomer is faster. I would. Right. Uh, right. But I would switch that around. I mean, fine, yeah, maybe. And then Emily comes up and she's the fastest. Definitely. Absolutely. So when you look at that, comparatives and superlatives don't exist. So how do they do it? Well, they repeat themselves in artistic ways. So where do you worship every day? And where are sacrifices taking place? In the holy place of the temple. Where is the most sacred place in the temple? The holy of holies, right? So they repeat themselves to say, that's holier. And now what do the angels say in God's temple when Isaiah sees the veil between heaven and earth ripped open and he sees the angels? What do they say? The same thing we do. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, 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 right? So that triple holy is... you know, this this place, this is the holy place. This is the holy of holies. But in God's temple, it's holy, 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 right? So you have to be clued into these things in order to start to study scripture. And the more you get clued in, the more it draws you in and the deeper it goes. And that's why I, I can't remember who it was that said that the Bible is a pool that infants can play in and an ocean that can drown elephants. And you really do understand, like, I'm just breaking the depths, right? I'm just wading out into the into the deeper waters when... You read the story of Noah, and for the first time you realize, oh, God makes a distinction between clean and unclean animals. This isn't just about 
a, a cute giraffe head popping out of a square window on, on a image hanging in my son Noah's room, right? Like there's all these like children's things of Noah, but you realize like clean and unclean, what does that mean? What does it mean that the very first thing Noah did when he got out of the ark was build an altar and offer a sacrifice? Like these things, th these are all sacrificial terms. Why did the ark have three layers, right? Th because it's all symbolic of sea, land, and heavens, right? Well, guess what? Every Catholic church is built with, well, should be built with three steps that go up to the altar because that represents uh, the seas, the land, and then the heavens. Wow. And so when you're in the sanctuary, you're in the heavens. This tripartite structure also belongs to the temple. Also, but like over and over and over again. So creation mimics the temple, mimics creation. So the symbols all reinforce one another. So you feel as a, I mean, Adam was considered to be the greatest of all the priests until the fall. Right, And then you have Noah. He's the next rebooter of creation. And what's the first thing he does after he gets out of the ark? With clean animals, which is a sacrificial temple term, he offers sacrifice. And then it's stuff like this that has, as the more you grow in your knowledge of scripture, the more arresting it becomes. It drags you to the deep. Yeah, that's, that is fascinating. I think uh, the book of Genesis and the, 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 the fall is one of those stories that you can yeah. read to a child and they can you know, sort of glean their meaning out of it. Yeah. And, but then you'll be forever documenting and diving into the symbolism of, of that story. I mean, there's books and libraries written about, about that, never ending, really. Yeah. So do you need to know? Do you need to have that knowledge first to dive into the Bible, or how are you supposed to get to the place where you can glean all of this information um, or, or all this meaning uh, from Scripture before so, having it? Yeah, so the way I tell Catholics who are completely foreign to studying Scripture is I tell them, first, you have to go to Mass often enough that the words of the liturgy are being sacramentalized right in front of you, right? They're being made concrete. They're incarnational right in front of you. And so we should already have a knowledge of scripture. If you go to enough daily masses, if you go to enough weddings and funerals, right, in a year or in three years, you have gone through almost the entire Bible. The Catholic Church in our lectionary for our Sunday readings or daily readings or whatever, we have a three-year A, B, cycle A, B, and C, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is used often for solemnities, feast days, other things like that. And so when you begin to go to these things and experience it, that, that's our first entry point. It's through the liturgy, which is where it should be. The second entry point is I love the Jeff Cavins method, right? Are you familiar with Jeff Cavins? Not you really. Know? Uh, no? Not really until coming here. We had him, yeah. So we've had him here at the parish a couple times, and he had a pretty life-transformative event right before COVID, coming with Father Tom and um, Jerry Trejiak going up to the Ferguson unit. Um, and praying with the inmates up there. And it was really powerful for him. And so he's investing a lot of his life now. Him and his wife spent all of COVID discerning, like, where are we going to go next? And they said that prison ministry is going to be one of those main wow. things. Yeah, it's so beautiful. But what he did was he studied under Dr. Scott Hahn, and they're really good friends. And Dr. Hahn has this view of the Bible as like seven big covenants. Adam and a holy couple. Noah and the family. So it was a collection of couples. You have... Uh, Noah and his wife, and then his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives, or their wives. And then you have, so that's a household. Then you have many households, which is a tribe. Now we're in Genesis 12, and you have Abraham, who is a chieftain of a tribe. And then you have the 12 tribes under, in Exodus, under Moses, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you have, what do you have when you have many tribes? You have a kingdom. So now we've got the kingdom covenant under David. That's the fifth covenant. So we've got Adam, Noah, 
Abraham, all in the book of Genesis, then Moses and David, taking us all the way up to the New Testament time, and then we have the sixth covenant being Christ and the church, and then we have the final seventh covenant being when God is all in all, right? So these are the big salvation historical views of the church, right? You look at the succeeding covenants of God ever widening his family, right? So a couple, a bunch of couples, a household, a bunch of households, a tribe, a bunch of tribes, a nation, a bunch of nations, a kingdom, all the kingdoms of the earth, Catholicos, right? Catholic, right? Pertaining to the whole. You have the universal church, right? So what else is left but the end? So for Dr. Scott Hahn, it was so important to see that vision when he was a Protestant converting to Catholic because the, the covenant theology that's so, we hear this word all the time, covenant, covenant, covenant. For him, he realized that covenants made family bonds, but you did it through swearing a sacred oath. And in Hebrew, the word to swear an oath means shava, to seven yourself, the number seven. And it's like, it's so funny. And so he begins to see, oh, here's these seven um, covenants that God is making with humanity. And then he looks at Christ and he says, and here are the seven oaths that we swear known as the sacraments. And it's funny that in Latin, sacramentum means sacred oath, right? So you begin to look at these layers and layers of meaning, and it's right there in the church that the sign of the covenant, why seven days of creation? Because creation and God, God's making a covenant with creation. And Adam is the high priest and king and father of that covenant. And when he fails, he tears us all down with him. So if you understand that trajectory, you can understand so much more. So then what Jeff Cavins did is he took those seven covenants. He said, okay, but how can I get people to get the big picture? And so he said, okay, well, let's break it down to just the historical books, right? So you got Genesis that covers thousands of years. Then you got Exodus that covers, you know, 40 to 80 years. Then you go to numbers, you skip Leviticus, which is priestly code and all this stuff. And you skip Deuteronomy, which is more legislation. So, you, and I'm trying to do this off my memory. So Jeez. I know I'm going to, I know I'm going to butcher this, but you go Genesis, Exodus and numbers. Then you're in the Holy land and you have Joshua who takes them into the promised land. It begins, you know, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Then you go to the judges and the judges were, cause God was King. It was a true theocracy. God was King over them. But every so often when the Philistines would get up at a year, the Canaanites, they would raise up a judge who would rule the military and defeat the bad guys, right? So you have the success of judges, the people kept falling into sin, all this stuff. Then you have first and second Samuel, the rise of King Saul, but then ultimately King David. And then you have first and second Kings. Uh, so that builds on with the whole storyline of the divided kingdom, because after, so it was King David, King Solomon, and then King Solomon's son broke the kingdom in half. And now you have in the northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom, kingdom of Judah. And you have that narrative carrying all the way to first and second Maccabees, where they had a little bit of freedom little bit of freedom, then they ruined it. But so you have the story of first and second Maccabees. And then for the New Testament, Jeff Cavins recommends um, Luke and Acts because it's the same author of both Luke. So you get this big sweep. So if you're in first and second Samuel, uh, or excuse me, if you're reading Judges, you can then read the book of Ruth and be like, ah, this takes place at the time of the Judges. I now understand this is before the rise of the kingdom, but after Joshua moved the people into the promised land, right? Or then you could be reading the story of Elijah being like, oh, okay, this takes place during this time and during this reign and during this queen up in the north. Oh, well, up in the north, that means it's after the northern kingdom broke with the southern kingdom. And so you can start to understand where you are in the big So people need to know where we are in the big picture. It's hard for Catholics to read a prophet and not understand where it fits chronologically. But if you do, if you read these books, 
in that order, you're like, aha, aha, I see where all this fits in, and it's beautiful, right? So what if that all sounds a little bit studious, and, and diving into the entire Old Testament sounds like a ton right now? What, what about the New Testament? Where should I start in the New Testament if I just want to dive So in? I, I always give people this advice. If you don't have a prayer life and you've never read Scripture, open up to the Gospel of Mark. It's 16 chapters long. Some of those chapters are a little bit longer, but... My personal encouragement is for everyone to read two chapters of the gospel a day. And I say read as in read, not study. Because what happens is, like you were talking earlier about how do we get into this, if you don't see the big picture, so the covenant salvation history, the 14 historical books, that gives you a way to navigate. But how do you actually get into it is you have to become familiar with it. Hearing it at uh, at mass and um you know, maybe an adoration or wedding funerals and liturgies and stuff. That's good. But you got to read the thing. <laughs> you got to read it. Yeah. It'll take you maybe 15 minutes to read two chapters of a gospel. So if Mark's gospel is 16 chapters long, it'll, you know, and you'll, you'll be done with it in eight days. If you can invest 15 minutes for eight days, which I think all of us can, right? If all of us can invest 15 minutes for eight days, you begin to get the story down, the narrative flow, the teachings of Jesus. Mark writes in a very abbreviated way. He skips all the infancy narratives because the Romans wouldn't have cared about that. They're a bunch of ADD people. He just gives them the action. Starts with John the Baptist. Here's what happens. Here's what happens yeah. next. They, literally, he uses the word immediately more than every other author. Uh, and I think it's because immediately was like the lens flare or the exploding car yeah, of their the day. J.J. Abrams of the gospel writers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it added ex- I, uh, action and excitement and all that stuff. So within that context, you just have this easy, accessible, like, oh, I remember that parable. I remember that story. I remember that, oh, Jesus telling this parable in opposition to the Pharisees who are opposing him. Oh, that's fascinating. And you learn to habituate the life of Jesus. So many people don't understand. The reason why Christians are jerks is because we think we got all the truths, but we've ignored Jesus. Jesus says in, uh, in, in Revelations, he says, write the letter to the church in Ephesus. He's like, I'm praising you for all these good things, but here's the one thing I have against you. You have forgotten your first love, right? And he calls them to repent and return, or he will remove their lampstand, destroy their church. And the idea of being so great and having such devotion and knowledge of doctrine, but forgetting our first love, right? So that's where the, the Bible, we never want to just study the Bible. We want to read to get familiar. We want to study to go deeper. But ultimately, we need to contemplate it so we can see the face of Christ and fall in love more. Yeah, that's essential because as, as much as we can dive into uh, Bible timelines and history if we're not acting Christ-like. Uh, right. Because essentially, the the point of the Bible is not to know the Bible. It's, it's still to serve God. It's to love yeah. God, right? It's about your personal relationship as Protestant yeah. as that sounds. it's The Bible is there so that you can come to know, love, and serve God. Yeah, when we say, in the Catholic Church, when we say personal relationship, we mean two things very particular, or three things very particularly. One, we mean Jesus is alive, and he's a person, and he wants to love you. Number two, it means you're a human person, and all that makes you a human person, you want to bring into your relationship with Christ. And number three, it's an interpersonal communion, meaning it's a relationship. Meaning, it's it's a two-way street. You give of yourself to the Lord who gave of himself to you. What it doesn't mean, which it can often mean in non-Catholic circles, 
is a private relationship, me and Jesus. That is not what we mean by personal. Because in the Catholic Church, our relationship with Christ is always ecclesial, right? It's always the body. Jesus saved his bride, the church. He didn't save everything all the time or else there would be no hell. He saved those who end up, the reason how you know you're saved is because you're a part of the church, right? So those in heaven are in the church. They're in the church triumphant, but they're a part of the body of the church. You're only saved if you're a part of the body of Christ, right? So think about that. You are only saved if you're a part of the body of Christ. Now, people can be part of the body of Christ outside, you know, the visible walls of the church from our perspective. God is sovereign. He saves. But at the same time, he saves. But who, was, who survived at the time of Noah? The people in the boat or the people outside the boat? Mm. People in the boat. What is heaven? See, this is a thing that it's so fascinating to me. We all have a Muslim view of heaven. And a Muslim view of heaven is it's the paradise of earthly delights. The things, you know, in, in many conceptions uh, in Islamic heaven, it is the things forbidden to us here on earth we indulge in up there, right? And the virgins and all that stuff. But in Catholic, our view of heaven in the Catholic church has always been one thing, union with God forever. But this is a God who is infinite, eternal, never changes, right? Is life itself. So union, being plugged into infinity will never get old. It will never get boring. And you can always go deeper into communion with God. So when you say, how do I go to heaven? Heaven is union with God. So the question is, how do I get that union? What we get by grace, Christ is by nature. He is the union of humanity and divinity. This is why the Nicene Creed that we pray at Mass is so important to understand because that's what he is. He, he overcame the alienation of sin. So if anyone is saved, it's because they're united to Christ. Now, if someone wants to, you know, if God is working outside of the sacramental life, that's required from us. That's not required from God. He can work and will and do whatever, you know, God wants to do. So he can give his grace in some secret way to someone and lead them into truth in some path before some missionary can reach him, right? That's not up to us. We are not the saviors. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Lumen Gentium 15. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of, um, there's actually a challenge going on through yeah. Word on Fire right now to a, uh, a, a sister encyclical of Lumen Gentium. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, so the... Wait, that's not, they, that was not part of Vatican II, was it? A sister encyclical is just a funny way of saying it. No, it's a document for Vatican II, Dehi Verbum. Is Lumen Gentium also? And Lumen Gentium is too. Lumen, I think I'm right you were right. You were totally right. <laughs> I think I'm right. They're both what we call dogmatic constitutions. Mm -hmm. So Lumen Gentium is on the church, and uh, Dehi Verbum is on sacred scripture and the life of the church. Yeah, so right now, uh, Word on Fire is challenging uh, folks to read Deo Verbum this month, in, yeah. in the month of November, in, in, in two weeks, essentially, and it's a, sh it's a short document. It's really not too involved, and it's all about the importance of Catholics reading sacred scripture, what, what sacred scripture is, how to enter into it, and, and why it's essential to our, our faith life. So it's a document of the, the church came out of Vatican II, and, and yeah. it's important for all of us to, to have that background and, and, and knowledge um, while diving into scripture. Have you read Deo Verbum? Many a time. Many a time. I love it. I love it. It's insanely, it's insanely good. And the first, you know, if you wanted to dive into it, I mean, the first 15 or so um, paragraphs are some of the most hardest hitting, beautiful things in all of Vatican II. Um, it, it, it's truly beautiful. And when you, if actually, many people have actually read it without realizing because huge chunks make up paragraphs in the first part of the catechism. So in the catechism, the first part is on the doctrines, what we believe. And before section two walks through the, the articles of the creed, but section one lays down foundational theology. 
And one of the questions is, how does God come to meet man? And scripture is one of them. And so when you start to read the catechism references on scripture and the uh, interpretation of scripture, the inspiration of scripture, that's all Dehi Verb. You'll find DV1, DV11, mm-hmm. DV12. So that, that's all Dehi Verb. It's a beautiful document. It's one of the most beautifully written documents of Vatican II. So if you can look it up online, yeah. it's available at the Vatican website and it's available in many other forms. Word on Fire is a great uh, book of all of the, uh, the documents from Vatican II that uh, is beautiful. Mike Gormley actually gave me a, a copy. I did. I did. In fact, it's so funny. Um, Jerry Trejiak in prison ministry, he reached out. We got a bunch of Word on Fire stuff and they said, hey, we have additional books in our warehouse. Would, can we send them to you? And you can send them to the prisons if you want. And so they sent us the leftover um, Vatican II collection, which is just the four um, constitutions that are in Vatican II. Um, Dehi Verbum, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is on the liturgy, uh, Lumen Gentium, and then the other one that I'm forgetting. What am I forgetting? Um, the Return of the Jedi. Oh, yes. Everyone always forgets. No, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders, the best. Son one. of a gun, why, why am I forgetting? What is it? Oh, and Gaudium et Spes. Gaudium et Spes, which G-S. is the Church of the Modern World. Yeah. So um, within that context, um, Bishop Barron has this book, and the book is great. I think people should get it and look at it. A lot of our parishioners took our leftover copies after I gave them out as gifts to our priests and deacons and staff members. But um, you can get it online for free, and it lays out, if you're a fan of Pope Benedict, which I am, Pope Emeritus Benedict, I have tons of Ratzinger books before he became Pope. Like, I was following him as a theologian for years. Um, I love the way his mind works. Now, I'm a Thomist. I follow St. Thomas Aquinas. Cardinal Ratzinger is an Augustinian, right? So he, he especially um, in a lot of the his writing style and the way he approaches uh, meditating, bridging the gap between the Bible and theology. It's very fascinating. In fact, the greatest of all Augustinians, in my opinion, is St. Bonaventure. And especially for Dehi Verbum, Dehi Verbum was shaped and molded by Cardinal Ratzinger more than anyone else. He was a Pariti at the Vatican Council, which means a theologian expert that assists the bishops. And it was he was driving home this understanding of the historical weight of um, inspiration, how it was an encounter of real people in real time who were trying to understand Yahweh, right? This God who met Moses in a burning bush and who conquered their enemies and all this stuff. Like, how do you understand this God in this context? Yeah, and that's a whole thing we didn't really dive into, but I remember realizing, you know, I was reading like Second Peter uh, in his exhortation to the, to the church and also realizing that this was written by a, a fisherman. You know, this 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 is coming out of the hand uh, of a guy who uh, clearly was literate, but uh, maybe only just so. Right. Yeah. So uh, so to make that realization that these these were men and women who had the encounter with God, but God used them as a, a, a writing stylus. Yeah. But thinking about it in that way and the realization that since they're all writing in a uh, not in a vacuum, but in uh, the place and time that they were, that the culture had an effect on yeah. the Gospels. Yes. So they wrote in a specific way because of their culture, and I think that's that speaks volumes. And we have to know that culture, and yeah. we, we that affects us today because our culture can and should affect the, our evangelization and, 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 and in certain ways. So just to be aware of all of that. And, yeah, and, and so just going right to Dehi Verbum, right? Dehi Verbum, when it talks about the sacred authors, that meaning the human authors of sacred scripture, 
it says that God made use, and I, just so for the record, I don't have the document in front of me, <laughs> so I'm doing this all of memory, but it says that God made use of these men to the point where they were true authors, they were 100% authoring by their own power, but also they had the gift of inspiration, which means uh, that though they were free to create and draw from their own culture and their own language and their own whatever, their own idiom, um, that they express all that God wanted and only what God wanted. And when you start to understand that, you begin to say, wait, 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 wait. You mean these people were totally free to write what they wanted to write, but also simultaneously the divine nature worked with them that God got everything out that he wanted out and there were no distortions that he didn't want. And you say, how is that possible? And you say, oh, you mean the perfect union between humanity and divinity? in a book that we call the Word of God? Yes, you see how the Bible is a perfect sacramental in so many ways of Christ. So this is, this is the thing. Like, if the thing is for me and you to be united to God for all eternity, the union of man with God in Christ Jesus, that is written throughout all of our sacraments, it's written throughout our morality, and it's even written throughout our holy book. Like, that is how, right, our sacred writ, right, our holy writ, right, even that cries out, of the hypostatic union of ultimately the word made flesh. Wow. It's awesome. Okay. So, and this is where science is important, right? This is where archaeology and philology and all of that stuff, wrestling with the text, breaking text down, what we call textual criticism, form criticism, source criticism, what we call the historical critical method. Those are useful tools, but they're only tools. Some people get totally lost in them. And that's where you see, if you ever watch A&E's Mysteries of the Bible or the History Channel's Biblical Mystery stuff, there's such trash, terrible stuff. But uh, because they're they're drawing on very lopsided interpretive structures, and it's really horrible. To, you sit there and you watch. I remember one episode where God came to Cain and warned him, if you do not do good, uh, will not things go well for you? And then Cain went out and killed Abel, and this woman said, so God must be feeling really sheepish right now that he led to Cain. And you're like, do you think that was the sacred author's intention? Right. Do you think that was, yeah. is that really? So. That's fascinating. Well, I think there's a lot more to be said about this, and I'd love in the future to go over uh, specific books of the Bible and maybe how how to how to look at Luke and or how to look at uh, yeah. Corinthians. You know, but Jonah, Jonah. Yeah. What's up with Jonah? What's up with him? He's in Jesus a fish. said Jonah. Of all the gospels or all the Old Testament books, Jesus talks about Jonah. You know, a Why? lot. Uh, well, save it, Mike, for another Dang episode. it, I want to talk about it right now. No, we should. It's 45 minutes in. Yeah, Dang. so thanks, Mike, for coming on, breaking it down. Um, we just, yeah, 15 Breaking minutes. it down and building it up. So start, if you're hearing me and you've never read the Bible, open up Mark, read two chapters at a time, 15 minutes, two chapters, and when you finish it in eight days, start back over at the beginning of Mark and do it again. Or go to a Wednesday morning, go to the morning mass and go right to the Wednesday morning lectionary-based Bible reflection. Pick a Bible study. It's okay if you don't know it. It's okay if you if someone says Habakkuk and you say, what's a Habakkuk, right? That's fine. People can help you, right? It's always, We always know who the noobs are because when you say a Bible verse, someone says, what page is that on? And everyone laughs, mm. right? So what we want you to do, get a Catholic Bible, Catholic Bible. I recommend the Revised Standard Version, Second Catholic Edition, RSV2CE. Get a Catholic Bible, get it shipped to you, physical Bible. Don't get the paperback. Don't get the paperback. Get the leather or the hardback because paperbacks are terrible. Get that and start marking it up. Colored pencils, pencil, pen, mark it up. Read, wrestle. The word Israel, do you know what the word Israel means? Yeah, I know. Okay. I think you should say it before I say it. Just okay, we'll say it at the same time. Three, 
two, one. He who he contends with God. God. <laughs> it means a wrestler with God. Like the very that's name right, Israel, yeah. he who contends with God. So when you think about that, that's what we're doing with the word of God. So don't be afraid of being confused, dumbfounded, a newbie. Like go and do it because the worst thing you can do to your life is just coast through and it's like Catholic bingo when you go to mass. John 15, one through six, bingo! Right, like don't do that. Know it as best as you can before you hear it proclaimed. Beautiful. All right. Thanks for coming on, Mike. I have so much more I want to say, but you're welcome. Stay tuned. If you want to hear more of Mike Gormley, turn into the Etc. podcast yes. um, that we have on our on, on the feed. I think the same feed, or did we open a new feed for you? Well, I, I think a new feed. I think we got new feeds. Beautiful. New feeds. feed for you. Okay, so stay tuned for all of that information. Subscribe to our Flock Note. Take a look at our Facebook page. There's all kinds of ways you can get involved at St. Anthony of Padua. Until next time, Mike, we'll see you soon. Hey, good to have you back, buddy. Yeah.